I want to welcome you again to Park Hill Church. If you are new here, welcome. It is a joy to worship with you and to travel through the scriptures together. We're going to get into the teaching now. My name is Evan. Uh, my wife, Sandy, she's not in the front row. She's somewhere back there. My wife, Sandy, and I, we have the joy of leading this church with a fantastic team. We would love to get to know you as much as we can. Go back to the connect table to sign up and, and just make your presence known here. We would love to be connected with you and pray for you. Um, this is week two in our First Corinthians series, brand new series, going through Paul's letter to a church in an ancient city of Corinth. And we're walking through this letter, that's what it is, we'll be walking through for most of 2020, inviting the Holy Spirit to use this letter to shape us in this third year as a church together. So if you missed last week, highly suggest you go back and listen. It was the intro kickoff sermon where we looked at the first verse, Really the first word of the first verse, Paul. <laughs> and we looked at Paul's life and how God moved Paul from Christian killer to church entrepreneur. And he planted churches and raised up Jesus followers all over the ancient Near East and Mediterranean. Amazing story. Long story short, Paul fell in love with Corinth. And he planted a church there, and he stayed there extra long in Paul years. He stayed 18 months, which is a long time for a mover and a shaker like Paul to be in one place. And he gave his time and his affection to this church, and he got very familiar with this community. So much love. In fact, this, this letter is not some impersonal doctrinal statement. It is an intimate, heartfelt love letter from a compassionate spiritual father. In fact, uh, we're taking these first three weeks to really slowly work through this intro. Next week, uh, Aaliyah Persley, our pastor of community formation, Aaliyah will be preaching on, the verse, on verses three through nine, which is, three through nine is, is nothing but layer upon layer of encouragement and gratitude and love from Paul for this church. He's like a father to these people. And so last week we covered verse one, Paul, and we're taking it slow, which brings us to today, verse two. <laughs> okay. And, and we really get to see who, who receives this letter. Last week we saw who wrote it. This is who receives it. First Corinthians chapter one, verse two, let's read it. To the church of God. Okay, stop there. We won't go this slow later on, I promise. This is the intro. So notice that. To the church of God. Not the church of Paul. Not the church of Sosthenes. Remember Sosthenes from verse 1? He's Paul's co-writer, co-author. Paul did everything in team. He wasn't a lone ranger. And so this is not the church of Paul, the church of Sosthenes. It's not even the church of Corinth. This is the church of God. Okay? Right out of the gate, Paul wants us to get one thing crystal clear. The church belongs to God. So a local church gathers in a city, but it doesn't belong to the city. Park Hill gathers in San Diego. This does not belong to San Diego. A church is led by leaders, but it doesn't belong to the leaders. I had this interesting conversation with some East Coast friends a while back. They asked this great question. It stumped me for a second. They're like, Evan, Evan, you grew up in, in the West Coast church thing, right? Like the hippie Jesus move at West Coast. You grew up in that. Well, what do you, what, why, why do you guys call your churches by your pastor's names? I was like, what? No, we don't. They're, they're like, yes, you, you do. Like, you're like, I go to 
Joe's church. I go to Pastor Joe's church. I go to Pastor Chuck's church. I go to Pastor Dave's church. What's up with that? Why do you guys do that? We, we out here, we go to like, like First Baptist Church. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh my gosh, wow, we really, I guess we do. We kind of do do that. And of course, it's not just a West Coast thing, but it was su- it's super common in this culture. Maybe it's something about our celebrity-driven culture. It's seeping in. I don't know. And I don't bring this up to be critical at all. My basic point is this. As we walk through the scriptures together, we are constantly being invited to bring ourselves into alignment with God, all the way down to the language we use to talk about ourselves, even. Park Hill Church is first and foremost God's church, not the leader's church, not mine, not yours. The church the imperfect community of Jesus that gathers around word, table, songs, and prayer all over the planet, that church, this church, belongs to God. And so let's keep reading the next phrase, to the church of God in Corinth. This is important. I want to pause here and spend a few minutes talking about culture and context Bear with me, I think it's gonna pay off because this is so important to understand, especially for Americans who grew up around Christianity and the Bible, like me. In order to receive this ancient letter as God's words for us today, we have to understand that these are God's words coming to us through Paul's world. Here's what I mean. So scholars are basically agreed this letter was written in the early 50s. It's not 1950s. That's like 50 years after B.C. 50s, which is crazy to think about. This letter was written in like A.D. 53 to 55, which is basically 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. Like, that's incredible. Like, imagine, imagine it's the year 2020 now, and, and 20 years ago, in the year 2000, Jesus rose from the dead 20 years ago. I'm 38, so when I was 18, Jesus rose from the dead, and all these little communities are popping up everywhere launched by eyewitnesses who saw the risen Jesus. Like, think about that. You live in their world. Imagine the people who walked with Jesus and saw him alive are still, those people are still relatively young. And and you can get on a boat and visit them or write them letters, which one of several of them we have right here in our hands. And this one was written just 20 years after the last Jesus sighting. So, it's an amazing thing. The amazing thing about this is that 1 Corinthians was written in the early 50s. And then, but the difficult thing about this is that 1 Corinthians was written in the early 50s. <laughs> Why is that difficult? Why is that difficult? Because it means it was written in a foreign time, in a foreign language, to a foreign culture, on a completely foreign place on the planet. And all of those things can make reading the Bible feel very strange and difficult for us. It, it can feel, it can feel uh, out, of, out of alignment, and we ask all kinds of questions that they wouldn't have asked because we're in a different time. As American Christians, it is so easy to forget that when we come to the Bible, we are stepping into a foreign country. If you've ever visited a foreign country... You probably experience what happens when you just flat out, and I'm not, foreign country, I don't mean like England, okay, where it's basically kind of the same. I mean like, not Europe, like very different culture. If you've ever, you ever been a foreign, very foreign place, you may have experienced what it's like for, like what happens when you ignore the, the history and the language and the customs. 
Like responses that you get range from like people laughing at you to people annoyed at you, and maybe even criminal punishment for you or whatever. Um, for example, just take speaking in public. Very common thing, people talking loud in public spaces. Uh, this actually comes up in 1 Corinthians, speaking in public together, comes up. In our culture, it's super common to see mixed gender groups talking and laughing loud in culture, like Liberty Station on Friday night, uh, University Avenue, people walking along the street, uh, mixed gender, talking loud. We don't think twice about it. Uh, I spent a couple weeks in Russia once, which is kind of Europe, kind of Asia. It's very, it feels very different. If you're, if you're in Moscow and you're laughing and speaking loud in public, you're probably just annoying everybody. Like, they, they're like figures, probably Americans. Um, and, and, and then go south from Moscow. I spent another week in Saudi Arabia, okay? So if you're in the Dimam Souk marketplace and you're walking and talking in a group of, uh, mixed group of men and women in public, you'll, you may you get a warning from the religious police called the Mutawa. They literally give you, a little, they, can, they have these staffs, they can give you a little wrap on your ankle if you are ignoring their definition of moral vice in a public way. Because gender segregation is a whole different thing there. Unlike America, it's very uncommon for Saudi men and women to speak openly together in public, especially loudly, which is actually way closer to 1 Corinthians culture. Very similar. And this feels so removed from us. We'll read things like head coverings and women being silent, and we're like, oh, like what is happening? This is a, like it feels so strange to us. And listen, that strangeness Waking up to that strangeness is good. It's a good thing. This is part of responsible Bible reading. We need to keep reminding ourselves of the Bible's strangeness as we walk through it together because the Bible is not an American book. Our Western culture has it often forgot that. Like we're so saturated with Bible and Christianity that we often forget it's not even a Western book. It's an ancient Near Eastern library of documents. And now our increasingly secular culture is waking up to this. And the, our secular culture is like, why is, the, why, do we, why is this thing still here? Please, like, thank you. Like, why is it here? We don't need this Bible. And, and, and in, in 2018, actually, GQ magazine put the Bible on, the li- on a list of 21 classic books not worth reading. So, so GQ, they make this interesting argument. Check this out. The editors say, the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. I actually think they have a point. That's not wrong. <laughs> That's not wrong. They have a point. Even though, because we, we love the fact that the Bible's the best-selling book of all time, but it's more like the best-selling book we've never read. Because often we don't read it because we come to the violent or confusing or seemingly sexist slavery parts, and then we just sort of like give up. Like, we're like, oh man, slaves and masters and speaking in tongues, and now women have to wear head cover. I don't even... I don't even know how to talk about this stuff right now. I just want to like love Jesus and people and like have a good week and you just shrug and move on. So listen, let me take this golden opportunity to say this right now to all of you. You can understand the scriptures. 
The Bible is not impossible to understand. Are there debates and difficult passages? Of course there are. Like, yes. And by the way, did you know all of those debates are public? Like, they're not some dirty little secret. Like, there's these difficult passages, and people don't even know how to interpret this specific. There's all these different, and there's not one authoritative interpretation because we don't know exactly what this. Did you know that's not a secret? That's actually part of just normal Bible study. And, and Bible study is a normal part of following Jesus, which means if you're a Jesus follower, then getting to know that difficult stuff in the Bible is part of what you've signed up for, which is actually really great news for us. Because guess what? Like, living in the year 2020, it's amazing. Like, uh, this is an incredible time to be someone who studies the Bible. There has never been more opportunity uh, to actually get underneath biblical scholarship. Like, there's online education, like, more than we know what to do with. Free resources, like the Bible Project. Best videos unpacking massive themes in a few short minutes of well-done art. Um, Best podcast on the planet, by the way, the Bible Project podcast where they unpack the videos. Amazing. Even biblicaltraining.org. It's a free, world-class Bible and theology course list. Free. Like, you can learn from some of the greatest living Bible scholars of our day for free on your morning commute. Like, we have no excuse anymore. It's amazing. It's amazing. And all this to say, Park Hill, you can know the scriptures. You can understand the scriptures as God's words of love for you. And you can be aware of all the debates and not even have all the answers. It, this, we can, all of that, yes. And here's why this is so important. Because not only, the scriptures, the scriptures are foreign to us in two ways. Not only do they come from a foreign earthly culture, but they come to us, they're foreign, they come to us from the mind of God. This is what makes the scriptures totally unique, both fully human book and uniquely divine and inspired by God, is what makes it unique from all other documents in human history. And so as Jesus followers, we stand with the historic people of God in affirming the authority and inspiration of the scriptures as uniquely words from God. Words that come to rescue us from our self-absorption and self-destruction, our sin, and then reshape. See those two words. The Bible comes as a word of rescue and a word that reshapes you. Rescue and reshaping into his loved children by his spirit's power. You guys, such a gift. And now this letter, 1 Corinthians, this is how it comes to us. As words of love from a foreign rescuer to remake us into the new family of Jesus. And so are you ready for that? Like, we get to humbly come under these words, and receive God's rescue and receive his reshaping on our lives so that change becomes possible. Becoming like Christ becomes possible by the power of the Spirit. Are you, so are you willing, are we ready to receive God's words this year? This, this is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, to the church of God. And we read in Corinth. But as it turns out, like the beauty of the scriptures it's, it's, it's to Corinth, but here's the beautiful thing. 
The beauty of the scriptures is that when you dig beneath the strangeness and the unfamiliar, we start to feel really familiar really fast. And it hits actually really close to home awkwardly. It turns out ancient Corinth and modern San Diego have more in common than we thought. First Corinthians scholar Gordon Fee, he puts it this way, Paul's Corinth was at once the New York Los Angeles and Las Vegas of the ancient world. So all the status and work obsession and money and fame and sex and indul- every, everything those cities just kind of are emblematic of, Corinth was all of that and then some. So as followers of Jesus, right now in the 21st century in SoCal, our questions suddenly feel very relevant. Like we can bring our questions to Paul now. We can ask him, so Paul, what does it mean? to be a community that practices the way of Jesus against the grain of a culture that idolizes status and wealth and equates excess and unrestrained sexual expression with freedom. And Paul's like, great question, glad you asked. I wrote a letter about that. It's called 1 Corinthians, here you go. Actually, so as a church this year, we wanna receive this letter from the Spirit, God's words through Paul's world. So. To receive it, we have to check our assumptions at the door. Our modern sensitivities, we have to question those. And we have to question our personal excuses and our agendas and our pride and egos at the door. And then we have to commit to being a family that opens ourselves to become humble recipients of these words of rescue that reshape us. Paul goes one step further and includes us as recipients. Basically, explicitly us. Look, in in the rest of the verse, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Who who are they? This letter is for them. Who are they? Who are the sanctified? Well, that word we don't use very often, unless maybe you did over breakfast this morning. How's your sanctification process going, dear? Paul uses this intense word here to remind the Corinthians who they are. It's not a word we use every day. The idea of sanctification means set aside for a special purpose, devoted to God's purposes. This little church in the big city was devoted to God's purpose, and they were passionate about getting it done for the kingdom. But now the problem is, The big city is creeping into the little church, and problems are starting to surface. And so here's just a short list of the problems we're going to see in this letter. This little church is racked by divisions. Mm -hmm. Celebrity leaders are promoting their brands over one another. Mm, that, That never happens. The leaders, and those leaders each have their own groups of followers. Christians are suing each other. Unmarried Christians are having sex with each other, and then people are debating whether they're free to do so. And then, reacting against, next slide, reacting against all that sex stuff, other Christians are saying celibacy is the only way to be a Christian. And then there's a debate over whether Christians should leave their paganism behind. Then Christians are fighting over men's and women's roles in the church. Christians are fighting over how to prophesy and speak in tongues. Some are even denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Does any of this list sound familiar? Yes, that could have been written like last week. 
And, and this is the beauty of the Bible, you guys. Again, beneath the strangeness, it's worth digging through it because it always gets really uncomfortably unfamiliar. And Paul realizes all those problems, all those problems are happening because secular values are seeping in to the community of Jesus. And so Paul says right out of the gate, hey, remember who you are, sanctified. You've been set aside for a purpose. Don't forget the purpose. Don't forget who God has declared you to be, loved, unique, beloved sons and daughters that are shaped by Jesus's character, not the character of your sec secular, sexually liberated, status-obsessed city. That's what sanctified means. So if you, if any of us, have come into this family through baptism and through a confession, yes, Jesus is my authority, he's my Lord, he's my king, that's what that means. And we're, we're now part of this family. If that's us, then, then we are being set apart, we're being sanctified, which connects to the rest of this verse. Let's read the whole verse. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There we are. This, this is all of us, their Lord and ours. I love what N.T. Wright says about this verse. He says, God has set us aside for his own special purposes in King Jesus. That's what called to be holy in verse two means. And then the last part, it's great. And the people in question are expected to cooperate with this. <laughs> if you call Jesus Lord, follower of Jesus, you belong to the family, your primary identity is loved daughter, loved son, then God has a calling on you that involves your talents and your gifting and your passions and who you are and your personality. That's what we talked about last week. Paul was called, and now Paul's saying, I'm not the only one called, you are called. According to this verse, according to this verse, we are all called to be God's own loved daughters and sons. Unique purpose and this identity comes with full forgiveness for past, complete healing in the future. And here it is. For the present, life as God's child is the lifelong process of becoming like Jesus. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. That's the part where N.T. Wright says, we are expected to cooperate with this. It's partnership, this sanctification thing. It's a two-way street. Peter says it this way in his letter to the early church. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Look at that. So what has God's power given us? Has he given us Every, like, he hasn't held back. He's given us everything. Everything we need for a godly life has been supplied. And then verse five. So for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. It doesn't say for this very reason, sit back and let his power just do it through you. His power is the foundation, it's the starting place. His power is the grounding for your ability to change in the first place, but it's a two-way street. It's up to us to make every effort to make use of that power. It's powerful what is happening here. And verse eight, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, 
they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is intense, but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. This was the problem in Corinth. They were forgetting who they were. Followers of Jesus are called out to become like Jesus, to fill the world with God's own brand of beauty and truth and goodness. And we're invited by God into this change process because we all have parenting issues. And, and God has invited us to all be reparented into his new family because he's a perfect father. He's the only one. And so we're invited to become more and more like this perfect father. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to ground our change journey. And then he invites us, commands us to cooperate with that change journey. So becoming like Jesus is a two-way street. You have that slide, slide 20. So here's the two ways. God gives the power to change. We embrace the process of change. How do we do that? Well, he gives the power by giving us new hearts and giving us himself in the spirit. And then our, our job to embrace the process, we give back our whole hearts and we do it in the community of the Spirit, which is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all sons and daughters everywhere in Christ. Community is non-negotiable for change. Non-negotiable for change. Remember, Paul's writing to Jesus followers who are being pressured by their city to stop cooperating with the Spirit. And they're self-sabotaging Instead of being formed by Jesus, they're being formed by their city, you guys. And as a result, they're forgetting who they are. Forgiven, clean, loved daughters and sons called to be a new family. They're forgetting that. So Paul's writing this letter. And we desperately need to hear it too. We need to hear this. Why? Like, you guys, we live in one of the best cities in the world, hands down. Like, I don't know if that's like, I feel like that deserves an amen, but that's, that doesn't. It's not a, we live in one of the best cities on the planet. Uh, my wife and I love this place. Like, we were both born 20 minutes from here. Uh, from our back deck, we can actually see the hospital she was born in. Um, I, my earliest memories are of my two-year-old self getting lost outside the model train museum at Balboa Park out in the woods. Super good times. My dad cried earliest memory of my dad. Uh, I was lost. What did he say? He loved me. And then lunch at the zoo with my mom before I could even go to school or do anything. It was just like petting zoos and beach days. San Diego is deep in my bones. San Diego's deep. I love this city, which means I have to stay hyper aware that this city is forming me constantly. Like James K.A. Smith says, uh, it's almost as if your city wants you. And San Diego's unique. Just, just, to, just to paint this a little cl more clearly, we're a big city. Like the new 2020 stats just came out. We're still, like the, we're still the eighth largest city in the U.S. Bigger than Dallas, y'all. So awesome. And, and bigger than San Francisco, twice as big as Seattle. So we're this big city with the appearance of like, we do have wealth, there is wealth in this city. It looks like it's booming. But listen, San Diego is unique because we love our leisure. Like we love to play. I mean, what do you expect from like the perfect weather paradise? Um, people in the South, I just talked to an acquaintance of mine in Texas. They're like, y'all are cheating out there. 
And, and it's true. Pete, Pete Wilson, former governor, governor of California, he was the mayor of San Diego. When he was the mayor of San Diego, he called the city America's finest, right? America's finest city. And it stuck for obvious reasons. It's actually true. Everyone's work week, and, and here, everyone's work week sort of like builds up to an epic mini vacation every Saturday. <laughs> By the way, it's really easy to find not one, but multiple best 100 things to do lists in San Diego online. Like not one list, there's multiple hundred lists, which is awesome. So honestly, people here do amazing stuff 52 out of 52 weekends. So, and, and, and it's like, the, the question has become a competition. Like, what are you doing this weekend? It's almost like this game. It's like, oh, nothing. We're just going to the world famous zoo. <laughs> or like, we're hiking, we're hiking mission trails after work. No big deal. You want to come? Uh, or or uh, we're, we're going to like, you know, just a craft beer capital of the world restaurant. Or we're going to drive up to Disneyland for a quick just evening out. No big deal. <laughs> Or we're going surfing, you want to join for a quick sesh or whatever. <laughs> By the way, you can always tell the tourists from the locals because tourists are always talking about how they like to go surfing. Locals don't talk, they just go. They just go surfing. It's like no big deal, right? San Diego, no big deal. That's the point. This city is constantly forming you. You don't even have to be aware of it. You just have to wake up in the morning. Our work and play and fitness goals political leanings, the company we choose to keep and don't choose to keep, our ideas around gender and sexuality and immigration and race and nationalism, patriotism, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. You guys, living in San Diego shapes us in all of those ways and then some. And the challenge for Jesus followers is to stay hyper aware of this effect hyper-vigilant, watchful of how this city's shaping us and commit to encourage one another to be more shaped by the values of the kingdom of Jesus. This is why Paul writes this, little, this letter to this little church in the big city. So as we come to the table now to respond to God, I just want to put forward one simple and seemingly basic invitation. But let me warn you, it may seem basic, but it's all-encompassing in terms of the potential impact it can have on your life and those around you. So here's the invitation. Will you, will we commit to be changed in community? Be changed in community. What would it look like for you to commit to a community that's actually being changed, measurably, like measurably being changed by Jesus? And you take stock and you take spiritual inventory and you actually challenge one another with spiritual goals. What would that look like? For me personally, this looks like every Tuesday night for two and a half years with the same group of people through the thick and thin of life, through the big winds and the really teary, tough conversations. There's something about authentic, spirit-driven community that changes you deep in your core, deeper than San Diego as a city could ever touch, okay? And today I want to invite you to be changed in community this year. Let 2020 be the year. I would argue the only way we can experience the change Jesus promises us is through this kind of community. So the best analogy I've ever heard for this as we wrap up, have, you, have any of you ever gone to like a summer camp and done the leap of faith? Super crazy, goofy, dangerous, awful thing. <laughs> uh, but, but you harness yourself in so you're like, technically safe or whatever and and you harden and then you climb up 
40, 30, 50 feet sometimes into the air and you walk the plank, basically. They don't, they don't like you. They make you walk the plank. And then, and then you're supposed to jump through strength in your own body and reach the trapeze thing uh, 40 feet off the ground. And so you can, if you've never done it, awesome, more power to you. That's great. Um, you, but you're standing up on this ledge and you hear your friends like, go, you got this, jump, do it. Don't turn around. Don't come back down the ladder or whatever. And, uh, and you're like, no, I'm climbing down. No. And your friends are like, no, you can't. Just jump. It's right there. We can see it so close. You're like, you don't see what I see. And the crazy thing, you go to jump. So you're like, okay, you, you choose to jump in your brain. And, and you're harnessed in. You believe in the science behind pulleys and levers and all of that. And you're like, and, and you go to jump and, and your body fights you. Your body's like, no. And, and for real, it's literally that song or whatever. Your, your head is like, and your body doesn't believe it yet. Your brain believes it. Your body doesn't believe it. And so some, some friend on the ground's like, I just did it. And, and you can do it. And you're like, shut up. And then before you can think, you jump and you miss and you fall. And like the harness, you feel gravity for a second, but the harness you catch it and you feel the pull of safety and your body learns something. Your body learns something. Your mind knew all along that the harness works. And, and, and then you try again. Same results. And then you try again. And, and, and sooner or later, if you're physically able to, you make it across. And there's a party. And your whole group, your community, is just celebrating this thing you'd never done that you your body said you couldn't do. And so this right here is a lot like being changed in community. Our brains know that we are the loved children of God who have been given all the power we need to transform. Our brains know that. We read it and we say, oh, I believe it. But, but, but we don't always believe it in our bodies yet. Our bodies still feel the gravity of sin and temptation and our past and our culture around us and everything else. So we need a community that is cheering us on from the ground, that's watching our every move. And we're totally open and awkwardly exposed with a harness in weird places, and we're just right there with our community. And they're like, you can do it. You're like, I feel, don't take pictures. Don't do that. <laughs> and, and they're right there with you. We need a community to be with us, to cheer us on, and to pray us forward in our journey of becoming like Jesus. So that's the invitation, to be changed in a community like that. You need it, I need it. As we walk through 1 Corinthians this year, the invitation is to be a community that's open to receiving these words from God that are words of rescue and reshaping. And then work out the mess together. It'll be a lifelong mess. But as we receive these words from Jesus, even if it grates against our egos and prides and conservative ideas or progressive ideas or whatever else, as we receive Jesus' words as life-giving truth, then we will keep becoming that family of God that's an outpost of the kingdom on earth. This is the last slide I had. We're not to be a religious subculture. That's not what Christianity is. A religious subculture is defensive and inward. We're called to be an outpost, not a subculture, an outpost which is spreading and outward and not insular and defensive. And through community, that's who we become by the power of the Holy Spirit. So can we stand together?
This is the invitation. I'm thrilled to see what God does through this community and through us.